I think a pastor knows when perhaps he's been in a book too long, when his sister makes a joke about it at a wedding, Well, we're almost finished. (laughs) We're nearing the conclusion. We're in chapter 4. We're in verses 15 and 16. And Lord willing, we will get through them. Long-suffering, patient, and gentle with us. We're so grateful for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for not being like us. We thank you, Lord, for the mercy that you've extended to us. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ and allowing us to rest fully in it. Forgive us when we don't. Forgive us when we think that we can do something that adds to it. Keep us from the parable of looking to ourselves, faithing in our faithfulness, faithing in our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, and may we always be mindful of that. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for its simplicity. And Lord, thank you for the good reminders that we have here in this wonderful epistle of Colossians that you have preserved through the ages. This wonderful epistle that focuses on the finished work of Christ and our union with him and the trust and the confidence and the hope that we have in what he has done for us. Thank you for that message. Be with us this day, we pray. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds to understand and receive your word. Help us to truly worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled my message this morning, A Tale of Two Churches, drawing, of course, from Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Not that this is a novel or a tale, but certainly the contrast is important and In Dickens' novel, he contrasted the nations of England and France and spoke of the consequences of decisions and choices that the nations made and how those played out over time. And I think, too, we find the same here today in the book of Colossians because Paul uniquely, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is drawing out some unique names which lend itself to contrast. I think it's important for us to be mindful of that. The Bible contains references to these persons and places and these churches in other passages. We considered last week the significance of Luke and Demas, and we began to look at Laodicea. Let's pick up with verse 10. Let's go back to verse 7 of Colossians 4, just for context. We're in this concluding portion of the epistle of Colossians, these greetings and salutations portions of scripture that are often overlooked and glossed. You read, you get there, you kind of skip it. Oh, it's the end, it's over, it's done. Not thinking of the important messages that are contained in these verses. Paul writes in verse 7, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant, and the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. 
Well, we've taken the time to unpackage who these characters are, and we've come to know and love them and to glean much important information from them. We considered last week, as I noted, this contrast that we have in verse 14 between two individuals in Scripture that couldn't be more different. Luke, of course, we know very well, and Demas we know less about, but we do know that Demas would leave Paul in a lurch, as he would note in another passage in Scripture, and leave him for Thessalonica not to be heard of again. The implications being that Demas was not a true believer and that he abandoned Paul and the faith and walked off and pursued the world and his love for the world. His heart was there, and he could only pretend for so long. You, can only, you can't fake it until you make it in Christianity. And so he was teased out ultimately as not being someone who was genuine, and he leaves Paul. And we also then have this contrast that we find with the church in Laodicea. We've talked briefly about it in verse 15. Paul says to greet the brethren, so we know that there are believers in this church in Laodicea. There's a church um, that's in the house of this individual named Nympha. And then we have Paul stating that this letter, the letter that he's written to the Colossians, is to be read to the church in Laodicea, and that the letter that they have from him, most likely Ephesians, is to be read there in Colossae as well. So what do we know? We know that the church in Laodicea is receiving important instruction from the Apostle Paul as it relates to the content that we know exists in in Colossians, which is primarily about the error and the problems related to um, this false teacher who has come into their midst and teaching them to focus on other things than Christ. Focus on yourself, look to angels, worship angels, have these special temple experiences, engage in excited utterances, and also add a lot of legalism to it, and that will get you through. Paul, of course, says at the end of chapter 2 that while these things may sound witty and clever, they're of no good for fighting sin. They have no profit in that regard. What's interesting, though, is that apparently this false teacher has found his way into these other churches because Paul is wanting this letter read in that church. This false teacher, Laodicea, was only some 15 miles from Colossae, Heropolis about 12. So these were in the same vicinity, and these false teachers, or this false teacher, was making the circuit. Importantly, too, Epaphras would have been the pastor of that church as well. We have an indication of that because it says in an earlier passage that Epaphras was laboring in prayer for them. Hard toil, the idea being that he was very concerned about what was happening in these churches because of the false teacher that had arisen within their midst or had come into their midst. And so today what I wanted to do was to continue to unpackage this significance of contrasting these two churches. It truly is a story of two churches. We have the faithful people of Colossae, and we ultimately find in Scripture that the Laodicean church is marked out as a church that has fully missed the mark. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And I think what's significant for us is that we have to be mindful. One of the reasons I've labored so hard through Colossians is because we want to make certain that we don't fall into the same traps that the false teacher was setting for the church in Colossae. The idea of looking at a works-based righteousness. And what we're going to find significantly, too, is that the church in Laodicea fell into the trap that so many Christians fall in today thinking that um, if they are living in a certain context, living well, living in a prosperous way, that God must be for them, that God must be part of what they're doing because they're so wealthy, they're so well off, they're so prosperous that surely God is pleased with us. That wasn't the case at all. And some of the information that we have about this church is significant. So let's look at Revelation chapter 3. Of course, the church in Laodicea is one of the seven churches in Asia Minor to whom these letters from Christ are written, or to whom, rather, these these letters are written. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, I love this, 
Look at this language. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me the gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that you, the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I have overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now look at verse 22, and I want you to pay attention to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So pay attention. Listen closely. So let's talk about this church in Laodicea, and let's consider some things that are significant about it as it relates to what is going on there, both in the context of culture and geography and other things. So we know that the Laodiceans are the recipient of this, of this letter. We also know that they're receiving instruction from Epaphras, who is a faithful minister. Paul refers to the brethren in Laodicea in the latter part of Colossians. Clearly, there's a church there they're being written to, or they're noted here in Revelation chapter 3 as well. And whether you believe that Revelation was written earlier or later, the implication is the same. This church had fallen short of the mark. They had lost their sight of Christ and were trusting in something other than Christ. So we notice the recipient of the letter. The recipient of this letter in Revelation chapter 3 is the pastor and the church at Laodicea. This is what verse 14 tells me. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. This word angel in verse 14 refers to the pastor. So this is, being, this is instruction given to the pastor. The implication being is that the pastor was either participating in the error or needed to clarify the error that was present within the church. So what do we know about Laodicea? And the facts regarding Laodicea are important. We love the facts here at Community Bible Church, right? We want the facts because the facts give us context and they paint the picture. And I would submit to you that many people have missed the point of this particular letter because they don't understand the underlying facts. Some of them related to geography and economy and things of that nature. So what is going on? Well, Laodicea was a major city situated at the confluence of three major roads. It was one of the richest commercial and banking centers in the world. So pay attention to this. As a center of finance and banking, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. And here was a church in the midst of an affluent society, and the members of this church shared in that affluence in their personal lives. This was the home of millionaires. This was an upper-middle-class, wealthy congregation. The city of Laodicea was also the home of a famous medical school. Now again, pay attention to the facts. This medical school was renowned for the healing eye salve it produced in order to improve the eyesight of those afflicted with various ailments of the eye. Furthermore, Laodicea was also known for the production of fine garments woven from the soft black wool that was produced by a particular variety of sheep which they bred. Garments made from this wool were highly prized and very expensive. Lots of money, good medicine, nice clothes. This was the life in Laodicea. Now, here's something else that's significant. This goes to the geography of it. The city's water supply in Laodicea originated from hot springs that were six miles away in the town of Heropolis. The water that came out of those hot springs was laden with lime. It was brought into Laodicea via an aqueduct, and by the time this water reached Laodicea, it had become 
lukewarm. Lukewarm, lime-laden water is very distasteful to drink. When you drink cold water, it is refreshing. When you drink hot water, it is therapeutic. But lukewarm water makes you want to spit it out, especially when it's highly mineralized. And this was the nature of the water supply that existed at Laodicea. And so we need to make certain that we understand those very important facts because those facts will help us then understand the imagery that's used in these passages to help us appreciate both the indictment and the encouragement, the exhortation that is given by Christ himself to this church. We understand that the church in Laodicea was likely established by Paul during his ministry in that area. Like the church in Colossae, Epaphras would be most likely in Ephesus, hearing Paul preach where he is saved. He becomes a disciple of Christ. He leaves. He goes back to his hometown of Colossae and begins to preach the gospel. God blesses that ministry. And as a consequence of that, these churches begin to pop up. The church in Colossae, the church in Laodicea, the church in Heropolis, the church in Nymphas House. This is the propagation of the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that the gospel is flourishing, that the Lord is blessing the preaching of the word, and that people are being saved. And as a consequence of that, temples of people, churches, spring up. That's the consequence of preaching. And it's significant, too, that they then gather together under the ministry of a pastor to be taught the things of God. And so this, too, was the case in Laodicea, Epaphras likely going there and establishing a church and working a circuit between Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis, and perhaps even in Nympha's house, preaching the gospel, teaching them and preaching them. Of course, the false teacher arise, arrives, and Epaphras travels over a thousand miles back to Rome to communicate with Paul about what do I do? What do how do I deal with this? And the epistle basically outlines what Paul's instruction to Epaphras would have been. Now, Epaphras doesn't go back. He stays in Rome with Paul, and the letter is taken back by Tychicus and Onesimus, and it's likely given to Archippus, who is the new pastor, most likely in Colossae and Laodicea and Heropolis and at Nymphas' house. And indeed, Archippus is encouraged at the latter part of this letter to hold the line, stay the course. And so he has all this material and resources. And so these churches are being preached to. Laodicea has people in it who are believers. But it's significant that something happens, and it's likely that they fell into the trap and the error of the false teacher who diminished the work of Christ. Notice in Revelation chapter 3 then that this letter that's being read or written to this church in Laodicea is authored by Christ. In verse 14, it says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the amen. I love this, the amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Christ is saying to them, I am the amen of God. I am the truth-speaking God. Therefore, take heed to what I am saying because it is the absolute truth and you need to take it very seriously. When we say amen to something, we are basically saying, that's the truth. That's the truth. There you go, my Uncle Kent. <laughs> the best amen or west of the Mississippi. What we find here then is that Christ is the amen of God. He is the amen God, the true speaking God. And so what we need to understand that is that his assessment of this church needs to be taken as the truth. That's the implications of this opening verse that we have here. The amen, the one who is faithful and true, the one who is the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, what's interesting, too, is this reference to the fact that he is the beginning of the creation of God. That's important, too. So he's, he's the truth, and he's telling the truth, and he is a witness of the truth, and he is the beginning of the creation of God. And what is he saying about this church? He's saying to me, listen to me, this church is dead and I am the only one who can give life. That's the implications of that. I am the creator God. 
I bring things that are dead to life. And so we see here then that the framework for this passage is established as it relates to the, con- the, the importance of the message. This is coming from Christ himself, and we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. The church in Laodicea desperately needed to be restored and renewed back into the image from which it had fallen. It needed to be remade into a living and vibrant church once again. And only Christ has the power to do that because he who created the first life can restore life into the soul of this church that is teetering on the brink of death. And so when he says that he is the beginning of the creation of God, he is saying that he has the power to restore dead churches and dead and Christians back to life because he is the one who created life in the first place. In essence, he's saying, I know the truth about this church and I have the power to change this church. That's what it says. Now, keep in mind, too, a church is made up of people. The church is dead because the people are dead. The people aren't living for the Lord. We'll find this out as we get into this passage. So this is a quite extensive message to this church, covering verses 15 to 20. And significantly, of those seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor, it's the only one in which there is no commendation of the church. There is nothing good to note about this church. That's significant. The other six churches, something good is noted about them. Their faithfulness to the word, their standing against error, they're pushing back against things that are going on in the world. But here, this church is just completely bought in. They've, they've fallen in to the complete teaching of the false teacher, and their eyes are off of Christ completely, to the point that they can't say anything good about it, to the point that we have the pictorial metaphor of Christ standing at the door knocking on a church, and no one can hear him knocking. Dead people don't hear people knocking, do they? We'll get more into that later as we develop the passage. So in verse 15, we know that he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So what about this? Well, Jesus says here, I know. I know your deeds. He knows the true condition of his churches. And what's significant about this idea is that it's like, it's like Nicodemus in a way. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and my position has been that he's there to cut a deal. He wants to be first. He's the big deal, so he wants to be the guy who gets the best position. So he comes to him, and Christ knows his heart, and he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He wants to know about the kingdom, and Jesus says, and if you're going to be a part of it, you must be born again. Here, even though outwardly this church would appear to be all that it ought to be, affluent, wealthy, full of wealthy people, living high, living large, living big. You look at it and you think, well, they've got it all together. they got everything. But Christ says this, I know your deeds. I know you. I know where your heart is, and it's dead, it's cold. Jesus knows the true condition. So he saw past the outward image of prosperity. This is why the facts are important. This is why we need to understand what Laodicea was like in that time frame. So he sees past the outward image of prosperity and success and public respectability to discern the truth about who they really are. Nothing can be hidden from the eyes of God. He sees into the heart and into the true spiritual condition of his people. And what he sees in this church appalls him. As he witnesses the condition of the church at Laodicea, he is sickened by it. And this is both a personal and corporate condemnation. The application can be made in both arenas. And so in verses 15 to 16, he says to them, I know your deeds, I know your works. In essence, he's saying to them, I see the apathy, I see the indifference, I see the slothfulness with which you do your works. Your efforts at worship and service and witness are weak and half-hearted. Your zeal is tepid. Now, it's important. Look what he says um, back in 
verse, or in verse eight, uh, 19, rather, there's this reference to being zealous. Therefore, be zealous and repent. They have no zeal for the Lord. They have no desire, that, that driven, that heart-driven desire to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to, re- to revel in what He has done, to look to His finished work. But rather, the Lord says, I know your works, I know your deeds, I know that you're self-focused, I know that you're relying on your own self-righteousness because that's what the false teacher was teaching. That would have been what would have been prevalent, the legalism, engaging in those things and faithing in those things rather in the finished work of Christ. And so your efforts at worship and service and witness are weak and half-hearted. It was a Christless, a Christless Christianity. Indolence and listlessness characterized their spiritual activity. In a word, they were exactly as he described them, lukewarm. And so he says, I wish you were either cold or hot. Either of these would be preferable to being lukewarm. Now, I want to say this. And this, this is a chapter or a segment of Scripture where we get it wrong a lot, including this metaphor and the one about the knocking at the door. All right? So we're going we're gonna to slaughter some sacred cows here this morning, as usual. So it's important that we understand the metaphor that, that's being used by Christ with respect to the idea of hot, lukewarm, and cold. Most commentators and most people will say and think that hot symbolizes someone who is on fire for the Lord. Cold, on the other hand, would refer to someone who is openly hostile to the Lord. Lukewarm would then would be someone who is halfway between a zealous Christian and a hostile unbeliever. There's a problem, though, with that interpretation. Well, it's wrong. That's the problem. But the problem is this. How could Jesus prefer someone, prefer for someone to be cold, that is, openly hostile to Christ and his gospel, over someone who was agreeable to him and his gospel, even though such a person were not very enthusiastic about it? It seems impossible to me that Jesus would prefer a cold unbeliever to a lukewarm believer and say, I would rather have you be a cold unbeliever than a lukewarm believer. I don't believe that Jesus is ever going to say that. That's antithetical to everything this scripture stands for. And so when I get to a passage like this, I have to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. I don't isolate this. And so, unfortunately, the vast majority of commentators are wrong in the way that they handle this metaphor. And I've heard this. I've heard people preach sermons like this. The problem, the dilemma, lies in a proper understanding of the symbolic language used here. In order to understand that symbolic language, we have to go to the rest of the Bible. And in the Bible, cold is used in a very positive way. Look at Proverbs 25, 25. Proverbs 25, 25. And this is going to help us understand what is going on here with regard to this particular metaphor. Does Jesus really prefer that someone be cold in the context of how we would understand that? Well, let's see what the Bible says about the word cold. Proverbs 25, 25 says this, like cold water... To a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. So when you're out mowing the yard, and it's hot out, you go inside, you want a glass of cold water, right? Why? Because it's refreshing. You don't walk in and say, hey, honey, do you have any warm bath water I can drink or lukewarm bath water or just just run me a a glass of like tepid water? No, you want something that's cold and refreshing. Well, this is the idea being communicated as well. Look at Matthew chapter 10, again, for drawing insight into the meaning of the word cold, Matthew 10, 42. Matthew 10, 42. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, 
Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And so we need to begin to understand this. So in the context of drinking water, cold is a good thing. Something that is cold is seen as something that is refreshing to drink in these passage, passages. Now, we understood from the facts geographically regarding Laodicea that they had two neighboring cities close by, the city of Heropolis and the city of Colossae. Heropolis had hot springs, which were considered medicinal and therapeutic. On the other hand, Colossae had a cold water source, which was refreshing and invigorating to drink. However, Laodicea, which was between these two towns, had no good water source and has already mentioned it brought water in by an aqueduct via six miles from Heropolis, which by the time it arrived, it was what? Lukewarm. It was no longer hot. This highly mineralized water tasted fine when it was hot, but when it was lukewarm, it tasted awful. And those who drank it wanted to spit it out because it was repulsive. I mean, for example, do you like iced tea during the summer? You do. Do you like hot tea during the winter? You do. But do you ever like lukewarm tea? If it sits there and gets warm, either by warming up or cooling down, as the case may be, you pour it out and get some hot or cold tea as the occasion dictates. Jesus says to the people of Laodicea, you are like lukewarm water. Nobody wants that. That's the idea behind the metaphor. People either want it hot or they want it cold, but they don't want it lukewarm. You, the church at Laodicea, are just like your lukewarm mineralized water supply. You are distasteful, you are offensive, and you are undesirable. Nobody likes water in that condition, and I do not like you in your tepid condition. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. Jesus isn't saying, I, I just wish you were a bunch of unbelievers, a bunch of cold-hearted people in that context. I'd rather that you're piping hot on fire for me. It has nothing to do with it. What he wants them to be is like hot or cold water that is refreshing in the context of that idea. A good hot cup of tea or a good cold drink of water. That's refreshing. I wish you were that, but don't be lukewarm. That's what the metaphor means. The Laodiceans' apathetic faith did not make them desirable or pleasing to Christ. Think of the image here of drinking the water. It's very clear. Drinking cold water, that's great. Drinking hot, hot water, that's great. Drinking mineralized, lukewarm water, that's putrid, and you spit it out. It's exactly what's going on. This is the image that Christ wants you to see. Now, look at this. Verse 17, back in Revelation, so turn back there with me. Revelation chapter 3, look at this. Oh, this, is, this is good stuff. Now, don't forget the facts. All right? So we've dealt with the geography. We've dealt with the water. We've dealt with the meaning of hot and cold. You're understanding that now. And so this meaning, this passage has more meaning now to you, more significance. Now verse 17 says this. Look, look at the emphasis. Because you say. Okay? Who's the source of the information? It's the Laodiceans themselves who at this point we know are a train wreck. But look how their theology works. They, they've bought into this idea of that they're okay because they're well off, they're prosperous. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Oh, my. So what we find here is this. The problem with the Laodiceans is that they confused outward physical material prosperity with the approval of God. What do we have? Guys, who are these guys right here? Men in my theology class, we would call them what? Karmic Christians. That's who they are. You have an example of the very principle that we've been studying in Evan's book, Karmic Christianity. We find it apl applicable right here. They think that because they have material prosperity that God's okay with them. They must be doing things right because God always blesses when you're doing the right thing. Right? Well, that's what many people think. 
That's what many people, that's the whole formula that they use. If I do this, if I do that, if I read my Bible, if I pray all day, if I do my devotions, if I do X, Y, and Z, God is going to bless me, and that blessing is typically going to be in something that's material. I'm going to have a great job. I'm going to have the best cars. I'm going to live in a large house. I'm going to have all the property. I'm going to have great investments because God is pleased with what I am doing. If I do this, God must do that. That's karma. That's wrong. That's not biblical at all. But we find this church being condemned for that mindset. In fact, they can't say anything good about them. Jesus has no good words for them. And instead, what did he say to them? Look at the end of verse 17. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. What a condemnation. They supposed that gain was godliness. They thought because they had material prosperity, they had need of nothing more. This, this is what happens when you buy into what the false teacher was offering. That's the type of thing that he was promising. Those are the types of things that he was emphasizing. Sadly, we find this type of teaching working its way throughout the church today in significant ways. This is the predominant teaching of most churches, unfortunately. If things are happening in your life that are bad, it must be because you're doing things that are garnering God's bad action. Forgetting that Christians are called to suffer. That God has ordained your suffering as much as he has ordained your salvation. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, I believe, or 29. So the problem here is that the Laodiceans have confused outward physical material prosperity with God's approval. This has been caused by this karmic view of suffering and blessings. Sola fide, faith alone, is not a component of their theology any longer. They're faithing in their faithfulness. They're trusting in the things that are going on in their lives in a context of material blessing, thinking that God is somehow pleased with them. And he's not at all. And he condemns them. He says that they're wretched, they're miserable, they're poor, they're blind, they're naked. Evan, in his book, Karmic Christianity, notes the following in terms of defining this problem. He says, this, prosperity, this propensity to discern God's degree of pleasure over your life based upon how much or how little he seems to be blessing you is what I call karmic Christianity. This mindset is not original to Eastern religions. It's a human problem. Karmic Christianity is the Christianized temptation to diagnose all the consequences of the curse in this life with remedies of doing more or doing better in order to secure fruitfulness, inner peace, life-giving relationships, physical health, financial stability, and an overall sense that God finally approves of your efforts now. He seems to like you more now that you are sincere and serious about your relationship with him. You can rest assured good things are on the way. This type of mindset leads people into this, this very issue that we find in the church of Laodicea. They're apathetic. They're insincere because their focus isn't on Christ, it's on themselves. And they think that because they have all these things that God must be happy with them. Things are okay. Christ reminds them at the beginning, I am the witness. I see these things and I'm telling you that you're dead and that you need creation. You need life. Your karmic Christianity isn't cutting it. It will lead you to hell. And that's the sad state of things today in so many ways. They were full of self-delusion. They thought they were full of blessings, but they were full of self-delusion. They had a big church that was full of big people with a big budget. They had all the finest furnishings. They thought like this. We have it all. Look at us. We are a rich and flourishing church. Christ must love us. 
The contrast that we could make even with other churches that are noted in the seven churches, the church in Smyrna, which was small and poor, Christ would say of them, I know your works in tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Of this church, he does not say this. The church in Smyrna, everything had been taken away from them materially, but Jesus said it was a rich church. The church of Laodicea had everything materially, and Jesus says, you are poor, you are destitute, you don't even have any clothing, you are so poor, you are naked. I know about your material riches, but you are really poor. Listen to this, even though you have this prosperous banking system, remember Laodicea was a financial center, you are poor. Even though you have this famous school of ophthalmology with its eye salve, you are blind. Even though you have a famous textile trade in the soft black wool cloth, you are naked. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what he's doing? He's tearing down everything. You've got the banks, you've got the medicine, you've got the clothes. You've got the money, you've got the building. But you don't have me. You've got nothing. And so when we see this, all of a sudden, the depth of this passage comes to life. We get the idea of hot and cold. Yes, I like a hot drink. Less I like a cold drink. I don't want a lukewarm drink. Christ would prefer they're hot or cold. That's refreshing. That's good. That's a, that's a better thing. Now we see that they're what? They think they've got all these things, but in actuality, they're nothing. They're poor. They're destitute. They're naked. This church is on the very brink of apostasy and rejection by Christ. He is about to spew out the members of his, th- these members out of his mouth, and yet they think they are doing great. This is a stern warning. Take heed lest you fall. Check yourself. They were full. The pews were full. They had need of nothing. They think that they're fat with blessing. Notice the warning that we find then in verses 18 to 20. We find the graciousness of Christ. Look at this. I advise you, look at the thing here. He does this contrast again. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. So he's driving into that idea of financial security. You want real gold. You want real security. Then you need to get the gold from me. I advise you to buy, me, buy from me gold refined by fire. Oh, wait a minute. I don't like the word fire because that means I might be persecuted. Things could be challenging. We don't want that. A lot of Christians don't want that. That's why you don't hear much about that from pulpits today. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich Ah, now, now they're talking, now he's talking their language, right? Rich, white garments, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You think you've got the right things, but you need, you don't. You've got the wrong things. You need the right things for me and what you need is salvation and you need gold that is refined by fire, a genuine faith that's teased out through standing for the things that are related to the cause of Christ. You need to be clothed in the white garment of salvation, the principle of justification, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We see that picture in Revelation chapter 7 where the saints are clothed in the white garments and you need your eyes to be open because they cannot see because Dead eyes don't see anything. You need real eye medicine. You need Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. Your karmic Christianity, your idea that you can manipulate me and somehow get a blessing out of me because you've done X, Y, or Z, leads you to death. You are naked. You are destitute. Abandon it. interesting to me that he doesn't just write the church off, though. This is an offer. This is the long-suffering nature. He says to them, I advise you. Listen to me. Look at the language. I advise you. He goes on in this theme, and I'm running out of time. In verse 20, 
he talks about the I, verse 19, to those whom I love, I'm sending this message to you because I love you. I'm going to reprove you. I'm, I'm, this is a reprove to you. This is discipline. Be zealous and repent. Now, these are, these are presumably believers in some context, backslidden, maybe a church full of dead people too in the context of that, but they're not hearing. They're so enraptured in their sin and their self-righteousness, they don't hear. Repent. Return. In verse 20, of course, we talked about this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, again, he's not, this is not a literal picture of him standing at the door, but it's a picture of the preaching of the word. That's what this means. I've got, you've got a pastor. He's preaching the word to you. Do you hear it? Whether it's Archippus or somebody else who comes after, do you hear what is being said? I'm giving you the message. I'm giving you the words of life. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you sit in the pew and you hear the word proclaimed. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Now, that would not be necessary if this church was alive. You notice that those types of words are not used for the church of Colossae. Paul commends them for their faith, their hope, and their love, their steadfast spirit. But here in Laodicea, they've bought into the error of the false teacher. And it's so bad that they cannot hear the words of truth. They do not hear the words of Christ. And Christ patiently pleads with them. I stand at the door and knock. Now, again, this is not, you walk into the Christian bookstores, like I said last Sunday, and you've got pictures of Jesus standing at the door knocking. That's not it. This is not about Jesus trying to save somebody. He when he does that, he doesn't knock on the door, he just kicks it in. This is about a church. This is about apathetic, backslidden church, a church that has embraced the world so much so that it has unregenerate people in it too and has embraced them and has made them part of what they're doing. We're not supposed to do that. And he says to them, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleading, I'm advising you. Do you hear my words? Hear me today. Hear me. Hear me. He's pleading with them. He says in verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. This idea of overcoming is the picture of perseverance. Those Christians who endure, God enables, he preserves, he keeps, he causes us to move forward, demonstrating the genuineness of our conversion. This is what this means. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as all, I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What a promise. The principle of perseverance. We persevere as saints because we are saints. A saint will persevere. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have a bad day or a bad time or a bad year. The righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up, but he perseveres. Him getting back up is perseverance. He's moving on by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. This message, message is significant. Verse 22 now look at this, he who has an ear. Now, that doesn't mean that there were people there who didn't have ears. It means that there were people who had ears who could not hear because their ears were dead. But those who are alive will hear the words, right? Those who are alive will repent. Those who hear what he says will say, Dear God, be merciful to me. I have turned my heart away from you. I am not loving you as I ought to. I am not living for you. I have bought into the world system. Like Demas, I have forsaken you for the present age. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for my reliance on my prosperity, on my tangible material blessings. Those are not things that have anything to do with your acceptance of my behavior. Make my heart right. Give me the eyes to have. Clothe me in the white garments. Cleanse me. Refine me by fire. If it's persecution, bring it. If it's death, bring it. But do not leave me in this state. That's the implication here. And so we have this amazing contrast between these two churches. 
and how easy it is to fall and to begin to be absorbed in this karmic Christianity, to be absorbed in our own self-righteousness, faithing in our faithfulness. Look what I'm doing. I'm here. I'm doing this. God must bless me. Your faithfulness is not sola fide. It's not sola Christus. You have to faith in Christ, not yourself. That's the problem in Laodicea. They were consumed with themselves. And I would rather that you were hot or cold. It's much more refreshing to drink a cold glass of water and a hot cup of tea than something that is lukewarm. Don't be lukewarm. And so we have to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear me, live for me, love me. Be ready to die for me if that's what's necessary. As gold refined by fire, buy it for me and you will be truly rich. You will be truly wealthy in the context of that spiritual condition. I trust that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you do not, it's simple. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who has an ear, let him here. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Lord, keep us from this type of error. Forgive us for even dabbling and wandering into these types of mindsets. Help us to be, listen, help us to listen to what you're advising. May we always buy from you that gold which is refined by fire. Help our eyes to be focused. Help us to see Jesus Christ continuously. Forgive us for our wanderings into error. Help us to love the Lord more, to live for Him, not to get more, but out of gratitude for what He has done for us. Thank you for this good reminder from the book of Revelation. Thank you for the reference to Laodicea in the book of Colossians to give us a reminder to think and to look about the church in Laodicea. Thank you for these amazing contrasts that you've given us in your word. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.